We're going to be back in the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians, if you'll turn there. So the last time I preached, we were in chapter five and I went through the first six verses, verses. Um, the last two sermons have relied heavily on what true free will is. And the fact that the only way we really have true free will is in Christ. It's a, it's a theme that we have to understand coming through the book of Galatians. Because only then, only in Christ, can we actually accomplish what our will truly is. People like to talk about free will a lot, but they don't have the ability to do what they want. None of us do. Only some things. And so that's what we see as we see in Christ. Now we have the ability because he changes our will to his, and through him we can do his will. That's, been a, that's a promise that is given to us. Um, and then we saw there's no middle ground when it comes to salvation. You will either try to earn it by keeping the commandments, by going back under the law, or by earning your way, by pleasing God with somehow with your actions, or, and you will fail in that, or you will trust in Christ and his work entirely. His work alone on the cross to be saved. That's it. There's a lot of people that try to find middle ground on that particular issue when it comes to works and grace, but there is no middle ground. Now, that does not mean, as Paul says, that does not mean that there won't be good works. Of course there will be good works. Of course there will be outcomes. There will be fruits coming from this vine, from the root, which is Christ. But that does not and will not ever play a part in your salvation. It's important to understand that. In verse 4, we heard that trying to earn our salvation was actually a sign that we were estranged from Christ. We were separated, severed from Jesus. If we're trying to earn that, that was, that is a, it's almost like a litmus test. If that, and it's a check that we need to make in our mind. Am I trying to earn the, the favor of God? Am I trying to earn my way to heaven? If somebody asks you, if you died today, do you know where you would go? And your answer is, I'm not sure, but I'm trying, which is a very, very common answer if you are witness to very many people. Then you need, then there's a very good chance you're estranged, you're separated from Christ. Because to doubt your salvation, now, that doesn't mean that you can't doubt your salvation. We all do that. We are to examine our position in Christ. But it's not to doubt it because we're of our actions. It's to doubt it because of our faith. Is our faith truly grounded in Christ or not? And then in verses 5 and 6, we see that those of us who have truly believed on the Lord Jesus have a true biblical hope in Christ. And that biblical hope is a confident realization of what God has promised. Jesus will return. And if your trust is in him alone, he will return for you. Specifically, he has you. He will come get you. And there is no doubt about that if you are in him. And that brings us to verse 7. And so as we go through this, I'm going to, I'm going to be in the New King James this morning. Um, let's, let's take a look. at So Galatians 5, 
Verse 7, he says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? It's like he's saying, you were doing so good. What happened? What is going on here? But there's an important point that we want to point out here. And it's not what happened, but it's who happened. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So this is, an, a, this is a beware moment here. This is a, I'm going to give you a warning to God's people that there are men or women who have the ability of hindering you from obeying the truth. He said, who hindered you from obeying the truth? They have the ability to make you stumble, to distract you, to cause you much pain, and to separate you for a time from Christ's blessings. This is something I think we're, because we understand that our salvation is secure in Christ, right? Once Christ has put you in his hand, he is not going to let you go, right? But we forget, because we believe that and we preach that, you have, it is perseverance of the saints. It is security of the believer. You are secure in Christ. He's the one that saves you. He's the one that keeps you. But I think that because of that, sometimes we forget um, that we still can be deceived inside that, right? I think because um, we, we can't be deceived to the point of losing our salvation, but we can be deceived to the point of damaging our relationship with God and to the point of damaging our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that make sense? So that's, that's kind of the warning that there's people out there that would like to deceive us. Sometimes they know they're being deceptive and they do it on purpose. Sometimes they think they are completely doing it within the will of God. I've experienced both and you probably have too. Um, so just beware of that and stay focused on Christ. Stay focused on the Word of God. And that's why it's so critical that we're in our scriptures. Paul put a post up on Facebook the other day. I can't remember the percentage of people, of percentage of Christians in America that think we earn our salvation. What was the percentage? More than half of professing Christians in America um, claim that we earn part of our salvation. That number has greatly changed in the last 20 years. So that comes from a lack of Scripture. It comes from a lack of preaching the Scripture, and it comes from a lack of reading the Scripture. So my warning to you is beware of people because they do have ability to mislead you. So what should we do? How do you, how do you keep from being misled? You study. You study the Word of God. Look at verse 8. It says, the persuasion does not come from him. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. This does not come from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in, that's his job, is to call you. It's to bring you to Christ. It's to open your eyes so that you can see the truth. It's to open your heart so that you can see God and his blessing and his grace. This persuasion that he's talking about, 
this idea that circumcision is some gonna, somehow going to save you or that your actions or that your keeping of the law is some gonna, somehow going to save you, that's not from God. It didn't come from the Holy Spirit. So where does it come from then? Turn over to John 8.44. He's talking to the Pharisees here. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees in John 8.44. He says, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Where does this non-truth come from? Where do these lies come from, this deception that is coming into the churches of Galatia? The same deception that we have coming into the, to America with over half of the people believing that works save you? Satan. It comes from Satan. It is an amazing thing how much Satan hates grace. And it is an equally amazing thing how much the natural man hates grace as well. Why? Because if grace is true and you're saved by grace alone, then we get zero credit. True saving grace forces us to admit that we don't have any control. You know, when I did my master's in um, education, I had a psychology class, which this doesn't really have much to do with psychology, but we had to do we had to write a lot. And when you write in college, you college students know this, the citations are very important. And the work cited at the end is very important. And I remember we spent an entire class, the psychology professor, talking about who comes first in those citations. It's very important that you get it right on whose name, if there's more than one person doing the work that you're citing, you make sure and get the right name first. Whoever deserves the most credit. It's a big deal to a human getting credit. It's a huge deal. That's our, and it's even more so in our culture. In academia, you see it. In athletics, you see it. I'm sure you see it in your job. If you do something great and somebody else gets credit, it, you don't like that. You don't like it. Neither do I. And that is flesh. And that is why man the flesh of man hates grace so much, we don't get any credit. It forces to admit that we don't have control. It forces us to admit that we are wicked sinners. If you weren't here for equipping hour, I wish you would have been. I had no idea this is what Blake was going to talk about this morning. But he talked about how the gospel is offensive. When you preach the gospel, it's offensive by nature. And this is part of why it's offensive. Number one, it tells you you're bad. The gospel in itself tells you that you are not a good person. But yet the Bible says that every man will declare his own goodness. And this is why I like the way of the master method when you go out and preach the gospel. You you ask them, are they a good person? 
there's been, and I've done it a lot, there's been a few people that before I ever said anything admitted that they weren't. Most everybody I've ever talked to says, yeah, yeah, I'm a good person. And the more they think about it, the more they think, yeah, I'm really good. And then you start putting the mirror of the law in front of them and they realize, well, maybe I'm not such a good person. And people get offended by that. Why? Because they want to declare their own goodness. And so when we do this, it forces us to admit that we can't do it. We need a savior. Satan hates that. Satan doesn't want, he wants control. He, that's what made him fall, right? He wanted to take the place of God. It was pride. And that natural man follows their father, Satan. And this is why it is not hard, it is not difficult for Satan to find messengers. It is not difficult for him to find messengers and send them into the schools, into the universities, into the workplace, into the church. That's what he does. And, and just kind of a side note here, the, the book of Galatians is talking about works-based righteousness. That's what the Judaizers were doing. They were coming in behind and saying, no, you've got to marry the law to this Christian faith of yours so that you can get it right. And, and Satan's the, the behind that. But, the, but the, there's no bounds to his lies. Okay, he's not it's that's not the only lie you're going to hear from Satan. He'll equally try to deceive us on the other side with twisting and confusing what grace really is and making it cheap grace. Right. We see that a lot. We see easy believism. Ah, just say you believe in Christ and you can do whatever you want. Satan's equally pleased with that. All he wants to do, his goal is to get you away from the truth. And he will use any means necessary. He does not have rules of engagement. There is no limits to what he will do and who he will use and how he will use them to get us to disbelieve. So how do we how do we uh, fight against that? How do we keep that from happening? There's a pastor in Stratford who used to say to be forewarned is to be forearmed. We fight against that with the Word of God. And you go back and read Ephesians 6, and that's a whole sermon in itself, as you look at the armor of God that He has given us to protect us from all of these ploys of Satan. And then the offensive weapon that He gives us is the Word, and we must study it, and we must know it, and be prepared to be, be prepared and not surprised that people are trying to deceive us. Now, Take a look at verse 9. It says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I'm sure most people understand what leaven is in here. It's yeast, right? It's yeast that's put into bread to make it rise. It's not a bad thing when it comes to cooking. I like it. I like fluffy bread, right? Um... But in the scriptures, most of the time it is used as a, as a description or a depiction. It's a picture of sin um, in the scriptures. It is, it, it's, when you're talking about baking bread, it's an incredible substance. Most people don't know how it works or why it works. They just know you put yeast in the bread and it makes it rise. 
It doesn't take very much. You have a big deal of dough, a little bit of yeast, and the whole, the whole batch will turn into bread. It's not like just a little spot rises and the rest of it doesn't. Mix it in and it, it permeates. But the reason it does that is because it actually sours the dough. It's actually creating a reaction, a fermentation, that creates little gas bubbles in the bread. It makes it rise. Um, it makes it taste good. But the reason that it happens, the reason this fermentation happens, is because we live in a fallen world. Without a fallen world, without sin, you have no fermentation, you have no rotting, right? So it's an interesting thing as we look at that. It makes it taste good, but it's also the leaven in the bread. It seems great at first, but it's also what makes the bread rot. It's also what makes it turn sour, turn moldy, and go bad. Unleavened bread will last, I don't know, maybe forever until something eats it. It doesn't rot. Why? Because the leaven is what actually sours. It's what actually goes bad. And so as we look at that, we compare that to what Paul is saying here, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Jesus said, watch out when he was talking about the Pharisees. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They had a false doctrine and they had the ability to spread their heresy into the people of Israel like yeast through dough. Jesus used the analogy when it comes to the false doctrine of the Pharisees. Now, Paul is using the same analogy. And he's talking about the false teaching. You can use the same analogy when it comes to a little bit of sin in your own life. You let just a little bit in. And pretty soon, that little bit becomes more. You entertain a little bit, and then pretty, and it's not very long you're consumed in this sin. Right. It it will also work and you can take it in any context, a little bit of sin inside the church, a little bit of sin inside your family. And it grows. It permeates just like leaven. But in this particular context, he's talking about false doctrine. He's talking about this little bit of false doctrine that has come into the churches of Galatia. And when you consider this and you can kind of see Paul's tone. There were probably no, there were probably people who had he had already lost, so to speak. They had already decided, I'm not listening to Paul. These guys seem to know a lot more. Remember, Paul didn't come with flattery of speech. He spoke plain. He spoke. It, it wasn't. He wasn't trying to be eloquent. Do you think the Judaizers that came in behind him were the same way? Is that how Satan works? There's Satan used smooth talkers. He uses he uses flattery of speech. He uses eloquence of speech. He's going to make it sound smooth. He's going to make these guys sound smart. Today we might even see you're going to see guys that sound extremely smart and they might have a bunch of letters after their name, so you gotta to listen to them. Right? Or it could be just somebody that's extremely flattering to you and you 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 enjoy what they, how they make you feel, so you listen to them. Whatever it is, there's, there's probably the case is that some people had already turned against Paul and were believing the Judaizers. But there were probably others who were somewhat on the fence. 
Have there, has there ever been a, a issue where there's two sides and there wasn't fence riders in the history of the world? No, there's always somebody on the fence, right? They may have been saying something like, why is Paul making such a big deal out of this small matter? Okay, we get it. We get it. We're saved by grace. We're not trying to go back under the law. We're not trying to do the feast. All we're saying is you have to be circumcised. That's it. You know, they're, they're on this. They're not saying fully law. They're not going saying, no, I still, they're saying, I still believe in grace. I just think that to get that grace, you have to be circumcised. Right? They're kind of like in the middle there. Why doesn't he just let that go? What is the big deal? He's going to cause division. If he doesn't let some of these smaller matters go. And Paul's response to this is a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If we let this little bit of false doctrine come in now, it's going to fester like a sore, and pretty soon it's going to take, it's going to take a leg, right? It's going to take an arm. It's going to cause more damage than you ever would have imagined because it was so small to start with. But that's how leaven works. A little bit will infect the entire body. And it not only stops with a local congregation, this spreads from congregation to congregation until pretty soon the entire visible church of America, the entire visible church of the world has been affected by this false doctrine. That's why he says, we got to stop it. That's why he writes this letter to the Galatians. That's why it seems like he's repeating himself somewhat over and over. Well, it's important. I got to get this through to you. He can't let it go. If he lets it go, it will fester. It's just like it, it. It's just like the bread too. When you first get that little bit of leaven in there and it rises, put a little butter on there. It's really good, right? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with eating leaven. By the way, let's make that clear. It's good. It's good bread. <laughs> but it does. It is the the picture of it is it's good at first. And that's how sin creeping into the church or false doctrine creeping into the church or sin creeping into your life works. It's, it's good for a season. It's a liar. It may sound okay. You may entertain it for a little bit, but it's going to rot. How many of you are going to pick up a loaf of bread that's been sitting for four weeks in Oklahoma heat? No, it's going to be... It's going to be infested with all kinds of things. You're not going to do that. And that's what he's saying. You've got to stop it before it gets to that point. And then in verse 10, he's going to change gears a little bit. He says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. I have confidence in you in the Lord. So Paul is going back here. He's saying, look, I see all of these problems coming into the church. I know there's issues, but I have confidence in you. And it's not just in you, but what? In the Lord. I have confidence in the Lord that he's going to work through you as he has promised. He's admonished them hard. He's rebuked them at this point, but he's turning back. It's not for the sake of being hard. That was another thing that Blake said this morning, that he was making really good points. Sometimes you have to get a little more tense. 
it's necessary sometimes you have to get people's attention. If, if a lot of you are probably like me and you have heard the Paul Washer Youth Sermon in 2002, I don't know if everybody's heard it, but he, it, it went viral before viral was a thing. Um, and it is, uh, as a result, there are a lot of people, a lot of people who have come to Christ and a lot of people who have come to a deeper theology in Christ as a result of that sermon. But there's a point in that sermon, probably the most famous point, was he was talking about how you're not supposed to look like the world, you're not supposed to look like Britney Spears, but you're supposed to look like Jesus Christ. And there's probably, I don't know, 10,000 people at this thing. It was huge. You could tell by the crowd. And everybody's cheering. And he stops and he says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. And I remember I was watching it online and I was like, oh. At first I was like, yeah. And then I'm like, well, you know, like he was talking about me too. Because at the time I was like all into it. And I saw an interview with him. And you can go watch it on I'llBeHonest.com. They interview him about that. And they asked him about that. And he his response was he knew he had to say something so radical to break through this false um, sense of security. I don't know exactly how he said it, but basically he said, I had to say something crazy to get their attention. And I think that it's important that we understand that sometimes we have to be bold enough to do that. And and that's what Paul is, we're about to see Paul do that as we go through in these next few verses. He's going to be bold like that. But at this point he's saying, I have confidence that God is going to change your mind back to Christ. He says, I have confidence you in the Lord that you will have no other mind. God's going to change your mind back. I believe, and Paul, we believe that if someone is saved, then God is going to bring them. He will let you stray. He does it. He teaches us that way. He lets us stray and he brings us back. But a good shepherd is not going to let you run off the cliff. He's the perfect shepherd. He will bring us back. And we have confidence in that. And that's what Paul's saying. I have confidence in that. He's going to change your mind back to truth. And it might be kind of rough when he does. You might have to swallow a peach pit. You might have to eat a little crow like, I was wrong. And if you've been a Christian very long, you've probably already experienced that. I know I have and probably will again at some point. But praise God that he always turns me back. He always changes my mind back to Christ. But then it says, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever it is. Whoever it is that is bringing this false doctrine will bear judgment. Martin Luther said this, he said, Those that are cast down on account of their sins, Christ must be introduced as a Savior and a gift. Absolutely. And that's what a lot of what Blake was saying this morning. Somebody's cast down on their sins. They're a sinner. We were all sinners at one point. We need to have compassion. We need to have the desire to see them to Christ. They need to be introduced to Christ as our Savior, as their potential Savior and as a gift. 
But to sinners who live in false assurance, Christ must be introduced as an example. The hard sayings of Scripture and the awful judgments of God upon sin must be impressed upon them. There are a lot of people, and that's what I think Paul Washer was doing in that particular sermon. And I think that's what is necessary in today's culture, maybe above any other culture that we've seen in the history of the world. We have probably more false assurance than maybe ever. I don't know, but we have a lot of it. We have a lot of people who believe they're saved and are not, and they need to be faced with the reality of the judgment of God. And it's some of that liberal Christianity that Blake was talking about that really needs to hear the truth. They need to hear that there actually is judgment of God. The one who is misusing scripture and abusing truth for personal gain. Do we see that anywhere today? Or or a personal following. Or a simple hatred of the truth is going to face judgment. It is going to happen. It's either going to happen in this life or the next. I'm, there, uh, Todd Friel preaches a sermon dealing with pornography. And it, he starts it with, you may not be saved. If you're fighting this, it's possible that you may not be saved. And you can actually talk about that with any ongoing sin. And he said... Wouldn't you want to know? Ever, the, the thing is, we're afraid to tell people they may not be saved. But the reality is, you would much rather hear it from me now, repent and believe, than to hear it from God on judgment day, depart from me, I never knew you. It is necessary sometimes to tell people you may not be saved. And here's the reality. If they're saved, what do you, you're not going to scare them off. You're not going to make them unsaved, but the heart of how you do it is extremely important. The heart of how we do it, many times, we get out of line. And that's what we got to check. We've got to check our own motive. We've got to check our own heart in that. So take a look. Verse 11, he says, And I, brethren... If I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. This is called logic, what Paul is using here. I know that's foreign to a lot of people these days, but it's just a simple, take a look at this logically. The Judaizers were claiming that Paul was saying that circumcision was necessary for salvation. That's, that's one of the claims that they were making. See, Paul says you have to be circumcised to be saved too. And Paul's going, no, you don't have to be circumcised. And they're trying to do that so that they can blend the law back with, with grace. But what he's saying here is that doesn't make any sense. If that's the case, if I'm still saying, yeah, you've got to be circumcised, why are they beating me? Why are they arresting me? Why are they putting me under all this persecution. The Jews were persecuting Paul because he was saying you don't have to be circumcised. And that was his point in this. Paul had never backed up on that issue, and he never did back up on that issue in in this life. If Paul converged the two, if he allowed man to have any credit in their salvation, the cross would no longer be offensive. Remember what I said. Why is the cross offensive? 
Because it demands that we have nothing to do with it. We have no credit that it's all in Christ. If the cross is not offensive to natural man, it cannot save. If you are preaching a cross that is not offensive to the natural man, it cannot save. Why? Because the message of the cross tells us that we're wretched. If somebody is not offended, they're either being converted, have been converted, or your message is off. It tells us that we're helpless and homeless. It, hopeless. It tells us that there is no way we can do anything to change that. Paul's saying, if I merge this law and grace, I've departed from that hope. We have to remember that whenever any types of works-based salvation start coming in. The cross is all that we need for salvation. Christ is all that we need. His work completed on the cross is all that we need for salvation. Anytime we start trying to add to that, we've left the true cross. And that, that's why, you know, when we, when we share the gospel with someone, I've talked to Brady Brewer a lot, and, and the, the worst response is apathy. And you can talk to most street preachers, most godly street preachers, not the guy that was at ECU probably, but the true street preachers that are out there to save souls, to see God work in souls, will agree when somebody comes against you, like the guy that walked off from that one conversation that says, Hail Satan, that is not a failed, that's not a failed attempt. Because if they were offended, then you know your message was correct. If they were offended at the message of the cross and not you, which is another goes back to what we heard this morning. So it's important to keep that in mind. The cross is offensive. People don't like it. People want to do their own thing. They want a little credit. They want their name at the front of the citation, right? Verse 12, he says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Here's where we see some incredibly harsh language from the Apostle Paul. This is where we see sometimes things got to get a little tense. Sometimes things got to get a little loud. Not always, but sometimes. Sometimes the Apostle Paul might have to withstand Peter to the face. Right? He may have to go stand up to him and say, brother, you're wrong. Right face to face. And in this case, he's going to write it, and, it, and it's, pretty, it's pretty harsh. Um, the Greek word there is, let's see if I can say it, apokopoto? Not a, anyway, what it means is, the, in, in, the, in the New King James, it's, it's translated as to be cut off. If you're re- reading an ESV, I believe it says to, to mutilate. So it's been mistranslated for a long time. People thought it meant, I wish they were just cut away from us. They were just cut off from the church, which I'm sure that's true. That applies, but that's not what the word means. It actually means to amputate. What he's saying is, I wish they would mutilate themselves. Now, this is in the context with circumcision, right? You back up in the first part of the chapter, he's talking about circumcision. So in other words, he wished they would just go ahead and emasculate themselves. He wished they would mutilate themselves in 
in their sexual organ. That's what it means. If you're confused, these are not kind, soft words. This is not politically correct. Right? Why? That's how evil this is that's coming in the back door. These are not words that you would expect to hear from Christians and pastors today, right? That's not very loving. Paul, I can't believe you would say that. Well, remember this. This is more than just Paul saying this. This is the Holy Spirit breathing this. Paul penned it. It's God breathed. That's God saying that. That's When Paul says, I wish that, I am guilty a lot of unrighteous anger. Okay? I know it. This was not that for Paul. Was Paul guilty of unrighteous anger? Probably at some point in his life. Yes. But not when he was writing scripture. This is godly anger. This is righteous anger. I wish they would cut themselves off. I wish they would take the knife a little farther up. Why? Because they are evil. We got to get them out. This is how serious this is. And those who are intentionally misusing Scripture or misleading God's people, they need to be dealt with on that type of strength. They need to be dealt with strongly. And they do need to be cut off from God's people. And that's why Paul is writing this. He wants them out of the church. He wants them away from the sheep. Why? Because of little leaven. Leavens the whole month. And then verse 13, he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's probably a whole sermon in that verse right there, but that's not the, that's not the direction I'm going right now. But we do see he's saying this, for this reason, for you have been called to liberty. We have liberty in Christ. Look at Romans 6.14. He says, "For, For sin shall not have dominion over you, but you are not under law, but under grace. We don't have to, we don't have to fight a a losing battle. The battle has been won. Do you remember when when David fought Goliath? The entire nation of Israel is back there shaking in their boots. And this young lad comes up and says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to find the the army of the living God? And he goes down there and one-on-one is the champion. And he kills Goliath. And what happens to the rest of the Philistines? They turn tail and they run. And the rest of the nation of Israel, who did nothing but shake in their boots, gets the spoils of war. They get the victory. David won the victory. He was the victor, the sole champion, all alone. That's what we have. And when we talk about spiritual warfare, that's what we have. We don't have to fight a losing battle. The victory has been won, and all we got to do is go forward and enjoy the spoils. So when we when we go to fighting this sin, when we go to fighting these 
false prophets and false doctrine and sin inside your heart and sin inside the camp. It's been won. All we have to do is put our faith in the one who won it. That's what grace is. We're under grace. And as a believer, a natural man hates grace. And as a believer, you love it. You will never get tired of hearing it. Why? Because you need it continually over and over in your life. And you realize it reminds you back to who you were, but now who you've become. In Christ, you was this person before he's made you into somebody new. You would have been here and most of us have the testimony. There is no telling where I would be right now had Christ not intervened in my life. And if you have Christ, you have that same testimony. There is no telling where I would be, what I would be doing. All levels of sin, all sorts of evil. But he has brought us in in his grace. We have true liberty. And Jesus is the only way to achieve that. He's the only way we have freedom. The truth shall set you free. And remember this, who the Son has freed is free indeed. He has set you free. Somebody else can't come and claim you as their slave. No. No, he won't have it. He will not have it. But with this liberty comes a warning. A warning with grace. Satan, he likes ditches. Right? He'll have you in this ditch of works, and he likes to keep you there as long as he can. And if you come out of it, he's going to be pulling you over into this ditch of easy believism, cheap grace, lack of conviction, lack of authority, anti-authority. Satan loves that too. Anything to keep you off the middle of the road. So that's a warning that comes along with this. He says, do not use this liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Because we're, you got to remember, the, the battle has been won. The war is won. But we still have individual things going on, right? We still have this constant battle between flesh and spirit. Right, we're still in this old carcass, right? And that old carcass still wants to do other things. And that's where we have to watch out to not take the liberty to extremes, not use it as an excuse to sin. And this is something that seems to be, I mean, it's just an ongoing battle. Ever since Christ saved the first person, there's, there's this battle that goes on. So we have liberty, yes, but do not indulge in fleshly lust just because you can. How do you keep from doing that? What should you be doing instead of trying to figure out what can I get away with? How much of this particular thing is allowed? Mm, that's the wrong question. The better question is, how can I better serve the body of Christ? What can I be doing with my time that better serves my brothers and sisters? That better serves my fellow man? That better proclaims the gospel? That better fulfills the Great Commission? And if you're focusing your mind on those things then the liberty of the flesh, you won't have time. You won't have time for that. And so that's the warning that comes along with that. In verse 14, he says, 
For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what it comes down to. You aren't saved by circumcision or keeping the feast or any of the dietary laws or any other part of the law. And here's why. The law was always a heart matter anyway. Nobody was ever saved by keeping the law. Why? Well, first off, nobody could ever keep it other than Christ. But the other thing, it was always about the heart. The big purpose of the law was to reveal that our heart did not line up with God's. Paul, as Jesus did reveal the heart of the law, and it was love and service to our fellow man. That is the heart of the law. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another the way I have loved you. And so that's what we see as we look to how we should act, as we look to how we should react to Christ, as we look to see how we should react to this grace, it's to love one another. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. It's to serve your fellow man. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. This is the, this is the alternative. Remember, there's no fence here to ride. You're either going to love one another or you're going to wind up biting and devouring one another. And anyone in Christianity, has, if you've been there very long, you've probably witnessed this. Uh, It still amazes me. I remember years ago in my job, I was having a lot of people fighting and bickering amongst themselves. Parents and students and... um, you don't know, I'm an ag teacher, and so I, I, I deal outside the classroom a lot with people. And I was caught in the middle of a bunch of this stuff, and people were just constantly coming to me and talking bad about that one, and they were coming, and it was just this constant turmoil. And, I mean, it was just, I, I, did, I was young, I didn't know how to handle it real well, and I'm just ate up with this. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized, these people go to the same church. They really did. And I was like, what is going on with that? Well, that's what, that's what Paul is warning against here. And that's what we certainly never want to see. It is a bad witness for Christ. It is a bad witness for the grace that he has given us. We should serve one another. Does that mean we're always going to get along perfectly? No. You don't get along with your family perfectly. But you still love them. And if you have Christ's grace and you love somebody, it should be evident in how you react to that. And so I'll leave you with this, and we'll close. Focus on Christ and the grace and liberty he has granted us. And then take that liberty and look for ways you can serve Christ by serving his body and your brothers and sisters. It may be as simple as a phone call or text, checking on somebody. It may be helping out with some form of work, changing a tire, helping fix a leaky faucet, I don't know, or helping financially. Or maybe helping to find a job or giving somebody financial advice or simply sharing a meal in time of fellowship. The list goes on and on on what it could be to serve your, your brothers and sisters But that is how we can serve Christ, is by serving one another and giving him 
the glory and praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for this gift, the gift of grace, Lord, that is so strong and powerful, and yet that we neglect so often. I pray, God, that we would constantly be watchful, that we would constantly be aware of people trying to diminish that grace, um, that we would be constantly aware of our own thoughts and our own hearts wanting to take credit for what we have become or what we do. God, I pray that we would always seek to give you glory. We would always seek to give you all the glory. God, as I know you are worthy of, remind us of that today. I pray, Lord, that we would seek to serve one another, that we would serve and honor you by serving one another, and that we would also constantly look for opportunities to share you with a lost, dying world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.